They say the owl was a baker's daughter. Lord, we know what we are, but not what we may be. What is man that thou art mindful of? The son of man that thou visitest him. An aged man is but a paltry thing. A tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. For the billions and billions of strange objects in the cosmos, you are beyond doubt the strangest. But behind the scenes, in the green room, you might say in the very back of your mind, in the very depths of your soul, you always have a very tiny sneaking suspicion that you might not be the you that you think you are. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, fellow travelers along the way, welcome to another episode of the Avalon Mentors Podcast. Of all the works of Western culture, perhaps the most influential has been Plato's Republic. It's a work of magnificent architecture, containing some of the greatest images and myths that we still refer to even today. It's a work that changes lives, and alters thinking, and gives us a vision of the greatness of humanity. We're going to be looking at this work together. I'm going to try and draw out some nuances from the work to find out what Plato really wants us to see. So whether you're an old hand at reading Plato and his dialogues, whether you have thought for some time about political theory and philosophy, or whether you are just for the first time encountering Plato, join me as we work together through one of the greatest works of Western culture, the Republic of Plato.
Well, let's start first with just a quick overview of who the man was who wrote this text and what the text is about. Plato, who was the son of Ariston, was a Greek philosopher living sometime during the 5th century of Athens in Greece. He was named Platon probably because he was huge, big man, wrestler actually, and he was broad-shouldered. So if you can imagine like uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson becoming the uh, father of Western civilization, that's sort of what we're looking at with Plato. Plato was himself a disciple of a man named Socrates, but uh, we don't get any writings from Socrates. We just get the writings of Plato. And Plato crafted his writings into what he called dialogues. They're basically a series of conversations that occurred sometime in the 5th to 4th century in Athens. And they are um, about philosophical issues. So Socrates is normally his main speaker in the in the dialogues and Socrates pre- presents the ideas of Plato with uh, interaction with other people called interlocutors the interlocutors in the work are those that speak with Socrates Socrates himself apparently we get evidence of him from Plato but also from Xenophon who was one of the historians of the era and Socrates seems to have been a man singularly concerned with truth with finding out the truth he um, he had fought uh, in several battles and had always displayed courage. He had a one uh, battle after the battle was finished. He had been found by other people standing outside his tent. He'd been out all night listening to the god, he says. And he himself was plagued by a voice that spoke to him most all of his life. He called it a daimon, a spirit. And this daimon told, told Socrates when not to do things. It never seems to have told him when to do things or what to do, but it always seemed to tell him when not to do things. So Socrates then went about in Athens asking people questions about their life and probing to find out what they actually thought about. And he uh, he examined their, their unexamined thoughts and ideas in order to try and strengthen their own resolve and their own belief system. He was uh, referred to as a gadfly, went around stinging people to prompt them to move forwards. And he himself uh, thought of himself as a midwife because he helped people give birth to themselves. Socrates was um, accused eventually by the uh, the tyrants, the rule of the 30 tyrants in Athens after the Peloponnesian War. The Spartans had um, defeated the Athenians in, in, in this long drawn out war between the two city states and the Spartans had instituted a puppet government called the Thirty Tyrants who found this guy Socrates among other many other people to be an enemy of the state and they put him on trial and uh, we learn in what the, the Apology of Plato which is an account of uh, the trial of Socrates we learn that their accusations against Socrates were very petty and primarily due to envy of the man. The upshoot of it was, though, that he was condemned to death, having been accused of corrupting the 
youth of Athens and destroying the morals of the city, he was then put to death by hemlock drink and uh, forced to drink hemlock and, and, and kill himself, essentially. But he was killed by the state. And his disciples then were scattered about, but, but they all went off to do similar actions to Socrates, to um, ask questions of the world and to examine the ideas that the people that they came in contact with. Plato seems to be the most prominent of his disciples. And um, Plato wrote down the words and actions of Socrates in these dialogues. But it's hard to discern whether we're looking at Plato or Socrates in the works because there's so much of Plato in those dialogues. It seems Plato was very influenced by mathematics, especially by the um, uh, the, uh, the the whole um, esoteric mathematics that was developed during the time. Pythagoras being one of those great figures there, uh, mathematicians of the era, and that mathematical thought or that mathematical school was deeply embedded in a a mystery cult that was based in Eleusis called the Eleusinian Mysteries. This cult professed um, seeing the world as a mathematical construct. Uh, they professed the, gra- the, the, the perpetual cycle of birth and death and renewal. They professed resurrection. They professed forgiveness of sins and further understanding of your fellow man. And there were a secret cult, so you couldn't reveal a lot of their stuff. What we know, we know through the, the poets and the playwrights of the time. The punishment for revealing their secrets was actually death, which, you know, I don't know if that seems merciful or not, but, but uh, certainly did keep their secrets pretty, pretty close. Plato himself, though, was a disciple of the Eleusinian cults, and he seems to have embedded a lot of their philosophy, their thought pro- process, in his works, his dialogues. And uh, he, he, he takes their ideas to heart. And he, he actually founds this, or creates this school uh, of Athens, which he trains other people to think and ask questions, including a very, very important character named Aristotle. Aristotle was uh, one of the major thinkers that goes on to create the peripatetic school, where they walked around. So it's called peripatetic because you know, they walk around. And uh, Aristotle goes on to influence uh, a great deal of Western thought. Plato's ideas, though, were for a long time the dominant ideas in Western culture. And we get our, um, not just our way of thinking about the world, but we get our, our Christian religion is deeply influenced by it. Our government system is deeply influenced by it. Um, the Greek, uh, similar to the Greek architecture and Greek imagery through Plato uh, is, um, is deeply influential uh, on our own architecture and our own way of living. So Plato Plato ends up being one of these pivotal figures that just changes Western culture, creates Western culture, you could say. So again, if you can imagine Dwayne The Rock Johnson being the father of our Western culture, or one of the fathers of our Western culture, um, I don't know who the other one would be. Aristotle, I don't know, Sylvester Stallone or somebody, I don't know. So here's Plato, and he's writing about... Um, writing about Western culture in these in these dialogues, writing about Socrates in these dialogues. And of the many dialogues that he wrote, he wrote quite a few. He wrote the Republic 
in order to address a specific idea. So each, each dialogue is like devoted to a specific idea. And this one, um, which originally was not called the Republic, it's, it's actually called the Politeia, the city, uh, Politeia, was written somewhere around 375 BC. And it concerns justice. Uh, ostensibly, uh, justice is the main idea that they're discussing here. Dikaiosune. Um, and that idea of, of justice leads to the construction in the, in the work of this city-state of, of, of a, a polis. And so it's called Politeia. And as the work goes through history, it's later termed by Roman authors as the res publica, the things of the people. So it's a republic. But its original title is the Politeia. And uh, the work is, is um, as I said, deeply influential. But I, I have a theory which I'm going to be putting forth here, which is not really a common theory. Uh, and uh, we'll see how you, you know, what do you think of it? Uh, the theory is that I don't think Plato is essentially a philosopher. You know, he, he does philosophy in all of his works. And that discussion of ideas and that examining of principles is definitely a philosophical tool. But I'm of the opinion, really, that the Republic is actually doing something different from philosophy. Its main goal is not to philosophize, to, to uh, bring people to love wisdom. It's, it's actually trying to create an image or create a series of images that build up in the mind of his interlocutors uh, a vision of how to live. So in this sense, in this building up a vision of how to live, Plato, I think, is more of a, a mythopoet. He's, he's more poetical, and he's doing mythopoesis, creating imagery in the course of the work in order to build up the minds of his, or souls of his readers and his, um, his interlocutors so that they can get a better grasp of the world. That's not to say that philosophical debate is unimportant. It is important, as is political debate. But I think that Plato saw an idea superseding this, which was the idea that um, it's like show, don't tell, as they say in California, right, in the Hollywood, show, don't tell. You, you, you're actually in the work showing people a vision of greatness or a vision of how to live, and by that vision then they have a greater understanding of the world rather than telling people how to live so that they go by their, you know, their, their well-argued reasons. I don't think most people live by well-argued reasons. I mean, they can. And well-argued reasons certainly can bolster up our beliefs and our, our, um, our way of living. But I think most people live more by images, by symbols, by myth. And so, that being the case... I think what Plato does, and this is why he's so influential, is he creates a myth by which Western culture uh, comes to see the world. And that's what the Republic is. The Politeia, the, uh, the Calipolis, uh, the beautiful city, is really a vision of heaven on a hill. <laughs> it's a vision of a city on a hill. And it is giving us a vision not just of how to live with one another, but also giving us a vision of what our life is supposed to be about and where we can expect to find eternal reward. 
So I'm going to be reading the work with this in mind. In this work, we're going to encounter some of the images and ideas, some myths that are pivotal to our culture. They have been so ingrained in us that we don't even think about them when we talk about them or use them or, or refer to them. Uh, there's uh, the, the, the myth of the cave being a very important one, and we'll get to that eventually. But you also have the myth of Gyges's ring, which shows up again and again in different works, not the least of which is, is J.R.R. Tolkien's work of The Lord of the Rings. We also have the myth of Ur, which is a myth about the afterlife and the, um, the, the realm of, of heaven, so to speak. We've got the myth of the metals, which we still use even now, like in the Olympic Games, for instance. Um, but we also have other various small myths and images that are brought up during the course of the story. So we're going to be looking out for those as we go. So now let me get a few things out of the way right away. Uh, I think of all the translations, you know, you can read a Benjamin Jowett translation, which is excellent, and that's, that's fairly common online of the, uh, of the Republic. You know, and then you could read... Um, you you could read uh, Grub. I think Grub has done a translation, and you want to get yourself a a good translation because anything uh, translating from Greek to English is going to be lost, or Greek to uh, any other language is going to be lost. So if you want to get as close as you can to the Greek, uh, you want to get a translation that's fairly good. So Jowett would be good. Grub would be good. I personally prefer the Alan Bloom translation. It's my favorite. Alan Bloom did a great translation i think back in the 80s maybe the 70s well worth looking into um but the one i'm going to be using here is a translation that was done in 69 by paul shorey from cambridge and it's it's a good translation so i'm not i have no objections to it necessarily a very good tool for you to use if you're able to is to look into the perseus project and at perseus project they give you the greek as well as the English, and you can look at the two together. If you're a casual reader or a casual listener, um, you can get the book on tape from a number of different places, or you can download it, I'm pretty sure, from Amazon as a, as a, a streaming or as a, uh, as a recorded uh, version. But one way or the other, you want to have access to the text, so you can follow along and follow along what's happening. I'm not going to be reading the whole text here, so there's a caveat that I'm given. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to be referring to it, and I'm going to be reading passages as we go. So you're going to want to read the text on your own and, and really really come at the work fresh, if you can, um, with just your own reading of it. Because Plato speaks to his, his interlocutors uh, directly through the text. So I highly recommend that you find one that is a good translation, Jowett, Grub, Bloom, um, Shori, and uh, and read through the text. That being said, I also have to give the caveat that I am not an official scholar here. You know, I'm not I'm not personally someone who is fluent in Greek, nor do I claim to be the definitive version of interpreting Plato. So. If there are disagreements about things that I bring up, or if there are ideas that are different, or if I get things wrong here or there, you know, mea culpa. Um, I'm, I'm, I seek forgiveness ahead of time, and uh, just bear with me. 
I have taught this work for several years, and it's one that's very close to home that I absolutely love it. So um, what I have to offer here hopefully will be of value. So get yourself a good copy, and then forgive my mistakes. Two caveats right at the beginning. That being said, let's do a quick overview of the structure of the work. The Republic is 10 books all total. You've got to understand when we talk about books, we're talking about uh, scrolls, right? Not, um, not Liber, not actual books as we know it. 10 books. And you'll see in your copy probably uh, line numbers on the side because that shows where you, know, you keep track of your, your text. It's little scribble marks that scribes would make in order to make sure they didn't lose their place. So 10 books all total. The divisions into books, 10 books, is not of Plato's doing, though. Plato doesn't actually do this as a later, a later addition to divide his work into these books. So he doesn't consciously say, okay, now I'm going to write book six. He just writes the Republic. But it's divided into 10 books all total. And of those books, then, various people have said there are divisions within the text that they have made uh, during the course of their own thought and writing. So Bertrand Russell, who was the thinker of the 20th century on, on Plato, in his book, A History of Western Philosophy, he says that the, the, the book, the whole of the Republic, is divided into three sections. Books one through five, he says, is an attempt to define justice and the ideal community, the utopia, and then the education of guardians. Then he suggests that books six through seven, he divided as the second section, which is the nature of philosophers and the ideal rulers of such a community. And then he divided the last eight through ten as the pros and cons of various practical forms of government. So um, he suggests that the, the second part is really has as its core what's called the allegory of the cave. Russell said that was the central to the second part and the discussion of ideal forms. And then the third part, he said, was the five regimes and uh, is, uh, is containing the myth of Ur. And so he has those as three different divisions in the work. You had another thinker about Plato, Leo Strauss, who writes uh, near the end of, of later part of the 20th century. And he says that there are four divisions in the work. He divides it as book one, a sort of a prelude. And then books two through five, he has the, the challenge to justice and uh, has a, a, a charge with uh, Socrates to reveal to them what justice really is. And then he has books five through six being the city and speech. And um, then there are these complications and identification with various modern ideas about government. And then books 8 through 10, um, he says, is where Socrates escapes his captors, people that want to trap him in logic arguments. And um, he then presents a rationale for political decay and recounts the myth of her at the end, which is a consolation for non-philosophers who fear death. So Strauss said there was like four different divisions. My own view? I don't know. I don't know whether the divisions are legit or whether we should have divisions at all, because... Honestly, I think what Plato's doing is making a single work. It'd be like dividing up a symphony 
you know, into movements and saying only this movement is important or only that movement is important. You know, the whole thing is important. If you want to take Claire de Lune, for instance, which isn't a symphony, I know, and say only this part is important or only that part is important, it seems ridiculous. Or, you know, you carve up the Mona Lisa and you say, well, her arm is important or her earlobe is important. No, the entirety is important. And you can say, well, I'm looking at this part of that part, but our divisions end up being kind of arbitrary. So the Republic taken as a whole is a sort of symphonic work or masterpiece, I think, of mythic creation. And so we think about it as a single whole. Now, that's tough when you're coming at it for the first time because you have to read in time, book one to two to three to four and so on and so forth. And you're encountering the ideas as you go. But believe me when I say, when you encounter it, and you, then you go back and you reread it, and then you reread it again, you read it four or five times, and eventually, eventually you find yourself at a high point above the work, looking at it as a whole. And you can see that the work holds together from beginning to end. There is a sort of unity to it, in the same way that there's a unity to a great piece by Bach, or that there's a, there's a unity to a, a great movie or a great play, this work holds together. And as it holds together, I speculate that it holds together like a, like a tragedy holds together, or like a, more like a comedy, in this case, holds together. In other words, the movement of the main characters, Socrates being one of them, and his interlocutor is the other, the movement is from one place to another place with a high point of tension at one at one spot and then like a story arc i think the republic moves towards a climax and then has a resolution to it just as uh, a good story does we start with the familiar we have the call to adventure as uh, as it's called by um joseph campbell we have the increasing tension and then the climax attention and then the resolution I'm of the opinion that the Republic holds together this way and hopefully I can show you some of this as we go through and uh, if you read it with me then go back and reread it again and then read it again it's a work that bears several readings before understanding the whole now with all that in place I think we're ready to delve right into the text we sort of primed the pump. There's been just an overview of, of Plato and his history and the work. We're going to get right into the text in the next episode, though. This has been fun. I've enjoyed it. I look forward to being able to go through the rest of the text with you. Until we meet again, God keep you safe, keep you healthy. West through hell. Here's a little tune that tells the truth. Pick up. A man ain't a man till a woman calls his name. A man ain't a man till he sets a woman's heart aflame. Till a man makes a woman obey his every rule. He's just a little fish in a great big pool. A man ain't a man till a woman calls.